Okay, well, let's jump right in here, right into the text. Uh, Genesis 22. Uh, I have a couple other things I wanted to get to. I wanted to ask you if you knew the five solas. Maybe I'll do that in the Q&A to save time, uh, because we do have a lot to cover here in Genesis 22. Um, Let's start with the news. Uh, If you're looking for bad news, you can find it in abundance, right? And I'm not going to dwell on the bad news. But just to say it's great to get good news, isn't it? Uh, even if you listen to uh, something like, like a good podcast, Al Mohler has a good podcast that tries to share the news that's in the world from a Christian worldview. It's just, it's still almost overwhelmingly bad as you listen to what's going on. The new bad news here perhaps would be the idea that we're going to have shortages. And, and so I see that really all over these stories that are talking about supply lines and Will there be enough toilet paper um, next week? And we don't know what's coming next week. And that's not to provide anxiety. I just wonder, uh, like this is, like if you look at the people of God, what were they talking about as they were wandering in the wilderness? Were they wondering about the supply line? Here we are in the desert. No supply line. (laughs) What are you doing, Moses? One supply. You got manna to eat for the next 40 years of your life. Good luck. And sometimes water, right? I can imagine the front page news or, right, they open their app and they look, okay, same thing, manna, all right, this is the only thing we have, this is the only supply we have. I, I point to that because one of the Psalms I was reading this week, God was angry, it grieved him when the children of Israel were faithless because of the supply line, because they weren't sure where they would get their food and water. And with them, it's understandable that they did not have it. And so as we look at these things and wonder about the future, let's be careful not to slip into an unbelieving mindset and think that our provision comes from anywhere else. It never comes from our government. It never comes from good management. You can have the best government, the best management, and still by Tuesday have nothing. Or you can have the worst government and the worst management and by Tuesday have unusual overabundance. And God did that in, his, in Egypt, and he can do that for us today. And I think we're going to find in our text today encouraging words that help us trust in God's provision. Knowing God's faithfulness to his promises in the past instills faith in his provision for our future. Okay, Knowing God's faithfulness to his promises in the past instills faith in his provision for our future. And so as we look at the provision of God in Genesis 22, it will instill in us an amazing conviction that God has it all taken care of. And actually, if we look at some of these Psalms, if we look at some of these testimonies of Israel, he actually will find fault with us and it will grieve him when we lack faith in his abundant provision. So we're going to get to Genesis all right, we're going to get to Genesis 22, but before I get there, please be patient with me. We need to take two minutes, three minutes, maybe four minutes. I should set a timer because we could take three hours on this. We're going to enter Bible college for just a moment. There, there's a few things we need to cover that are, we say, theological, maybe a little deeper, uh, that will help us be accurate as we handle some of the texts that we're going to handle over the next few Sundays. All right, last week I started this. But just the kind of the way we go here, it can only take a certain number of minutes, so I have to split this up. 
as we begin. Uh, Last week we saw this. There are references to Christ throughout the entire Old Testament. There are references to Jesus Christ throughout the entire Old Testament. And so we saw the Old Testament really foretells Jesus, and then you find the New Testament is actually declaring what he did in the past, right? So one's looking forward to the cross, one's looking back to the cross. Jesus confronted his followers for not being convinced of that. Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then beginning with who? Moses. Where is Moses in your Bible? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Beginning in Genesis, Jesus talked to them about Jesus, about himself. Okay? And I'm just saying, if he confronted them, and they did not have their New Testament, and they didn't have, a lot of them didn't have all the text of the Old Testament like we do, right? in their laps, they had to go to synagogue, then he would certainly find fault with us for not believing this. The second point, though, this Sunday, just going to take a little bit of time with this, some of the most striking references to Christ in the Old Testament are called Christophanies. Christophanies. Can we say that word together? Christophanies. Let me hear you again. Good. Good. I think we got it. Christophanies. This is, uh, I love these. I love these. Okay. There are three similar words in theology that, of which Christophanies is one. Okay. Anthropomorphisms, theophanies, and Christophanies. Anthropomorphism is the most broad category because this is not just theology. This is actually a literary device, right? So our English teachers talk to us about this, right, Pastor Andrew? Anthropomorphisms is really giving anything that is not necessarily human a characteristic of humans. And so we talk about the wind and the trees and we say the trees are waving their hands in the wind. They don't have hands. We recognize that. It's a literary device to help us understand something and often is used in a metaphorical sense or a kind of literary device for poetry. Okay, so there's these anthropomorphisms. A little more narrow than that are theophanies, and this is a theological term. Theo, or theos, is God in Greek. The idea of P-H-A-N, fan, uh, would, would be the idea of appearance, right? And so there's a verb and a noun. We don't need to get into all the Greek. But, but the idea of God appearing, right? So, so there's appearances of God that we read about all throughout the Old Testament. God appears and talks to people. Um, some of them we see are as person, a person. But some of them are not. I wonder if anyone, okay, we're going through Genesis 1 through 11 in our small groups, who would know one theophany that is actually not a person in the Pentateuch. Somebody throw that out. Burning bush? Okay, that's a, that's a good one. I'm going to take that as a Christophany, and, and we'll get to that, but that's a good one, absolutely. Uh, others would take that as this theophany. How about something that's like a bush? Good. Anyone else? I have a Starbucks card. How about that? Uh, and you can buy a pumpkin spice latte. 
I've been ordering something at Starbucks for years, and they never have it on the menu. It's apple spice with a shot of espresso. And every time I order that, they say, what is that? And they're like, it's on the menu now. All right? So there you go. You can get that. Whatever. Okay. How about before Genesis 12? How about a big one? There's a big one. How about a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke? That's the one. Yeah, pillar of fire, cloud of smoke, good. Uh, earlier on, we find God putting Abraham to sleep, and we see what? He's dreaming there, perhaps, but, but there's a, a covenant made, and, and the, the fire walks in between, right? This, this stove-like walks between. Um, these are theophanies. A subset of theophanies are what we're looking at today and throughout the weeks to come, and that's Christophanies. I love these. I love these. I mark them in my Bible. Um, At this point, we actually have Jesus coming and appearing in the Old Testament. Christos, Christ alone. Christ actually appears to people in the Old Testament. So Christophanies, if... It is kind of a subset of theophanies, and to be honest, the incarnation is the greatest Christophany and theophany ever, because there God himself comes in the likeness of Jesus. Now, a couple of verses, if you're taking notes, Jesus prophesied about this, or, or said this is true. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, right? We're going to talk about Abraham here in just a minute. He's saying, before that, I am, I am Yahweh. Jehovah, he's claiming to be Jehovah before Abraham was born. I love the way Micah puts it. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, ben, this little town, Bethlehem, from you one will go forth. This idea of going forth from me to be ruler in Israel. Well, who is born in Bethlehem who is the ruler of Israel? It's Jesus, right. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, ruler, prophesied to be born in Bethlehem there in Micah 5.2. But look what he goes on and says. His goings forth are from long ago. Like this going forth that's going to happen in Bethlehem has been going forth at times throughout history. Even from eternity, Jesus has always been God the Son. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have always been talking together, communing together from eternity past. Sometimes you open your Bible and you find Jesus himself talking to people like Abraham, like Moses, face to face. All right, so that's a Christophany. I'm going to just get us, because I want to be a little comprehensive on this, and and you can work ahead and try to pick them out if you'd like. Uh, Because of time, uh, this is kind of preparing us for the, actually what we're going to do is from now to Christmas, we're going to go to the the pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. And then from Christmas to Easter, we're going to cover cover the life of Jesus, the human ministry, human life of Jesus from from birth to the resurrection. Okay, so that's where we're going with this. Here's the first one, I think. Now, some of you may agree with me, um, but this is the first one, I think, and this is right in your study that you're going through together, Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, Genesis 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So there is this, this person who they hear walking. 
Now, I realize that may just be an anthropomorphism that's figuratively referring to a theophany of the presence of God. And a lot of people will take it that way. I do not. Uh, I will take this as Jesus' actually normal process of talking to Adam and Eve in the garden. And and just as a survey of heaven, of what we will all do one day when we enter his home again. From the garden to his very house. They're entering, but, but he's called the Lord God. That's why we say this is Jesus. God the Father is spirit. He has no body. There is no physical manifestation of the Father. But the Son takes upon himself the appearance that he will have as Jesus. Here's another one. This is the, the next one. Genesis 16, verses 7 through 14, where the angel of the Lord, and whenever you read the angel of the Lord, you are probably reading a Christophany. Jesus himself being sent by God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to talk to someone on earth. Now the angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a spring of water. She had just been kicked out by Sarah. He said to Hagar, Sarai's maid, where are you, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. She called the name of the Lord who spoke, the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. For she said to him, have I, have I even remained alive after seeing him? So here's Hagar seeing someone, talking to someone. Someone is encouraging her, helping her. And, 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 and she says, you are the God who sees. This one that I have seen, it's a play on words, is the God who sees me. And he let me live even though I saw him. Number three. This is a lengthy one, and, and so you can read through this. This is actually Genesis 18 and 19. Now, all along this way, I, I wish I could spend more time with this. All along this way, there are several theophanies. God is talking to Noah. Right? God is talking to others, and, and I'm not saying those are Christophanies. They might be. There's another one in Genesis 12 where God's talking to Abraham and blessing him. That may be a Christophany. I'm not sure, but these are a little more clear where it's Christ. Now the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men. So here's the Lord appearing as a human with two others. Three men were standing opposite him, and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth to worship. Verse 22, we're going to fast forward. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. The men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, two of them, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord, the third one. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed with his face to the ground. So those two others go, the one stays, and it says, there's this dialogue between Abraham and, you read it, it's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. Here we find the angel of the Lord being referred to the Lord. And the only way that can happen is if Jesus himself is walking in the pages of Tanakh. What I've done and what I encourage you to do if you do this is is kind of do a chain link of references of all of these. I did this with Genesis with all the references to the Trinity because the Trinity comes up so often in the book of Genesis. But you can put the first one and then link the next reference and the next reference and the next reference 
We've done three. Now we're on the fourth one, okay? And we couldn't do all of them. Um, there's about 15 to 20, um, but here's the fourth one we're going to dig into. The Old Testament is the shadow. The New Testament brings the substance. This is why I love Christophanes. The shadow of Christ takes substance at the incarnation. All right, so this is theology. All right, try to get it. Uh, the shadow that is the Old Testament takes substance, human form, takes manhood in Bethlehem at Jesus' birth. But look at this. In Christophanes, the shadow of Christ takes on form and appearance. So it's no longer just the shadow. He actually takes on form and appearance. Not substance. Not substance. He does not become a man until he's born. But he actually takes on the appearance of man. In Christophanes, the shadow of Christ takes on form and appearance. And so we're actually talking to Jesus. We're seeing him talk to these people. And in this case today, it becomes extremely significant. Extremely significant. Uh, so let's look at this. In Genesis 22, we're going to walk through this story pretty quickly. But with that background, this is why good theology matters. With the background of this understanding, it will really help bring a depth to this story that we would not have gotten if we hadn't gone through understanding more accurately the word of God. So, Christ, our provided lamb. There's this staggering step of faith that Abraham takes today. As we look at Genesis 22, uh, Genesis 22, um, God's command is found in verses 1 and 2. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. All right. Straightforward. But wow, what a command. This is referred to as a test. Um, the idea there would be proving Abraham's faith. Right? Like a coach, a, a training coach, has you do this diet and, and do these exercises. They're, trying not, they're not trying to get you to quit. They're trying to show you what's inside you. This is who you are. You can do this. Let's do this. And you can't do it unless you face these tests of strength. And so there's this test of strength that's going to prove Abraham's faith. Quite a command, though, asking him to offer his son what makes this command difficult? That's a good question. Let's look at the text and find what makes this difficult. First of all, it's his only son. How is this language familiar? His only begotten son. Right. This is why I say this Christophany is so important. His only begotten son he's asked to offer at this place. Your son, your only son. He doesn't have a lot of sons. There's this one son that he has with Sarah, and it's the one he's to offer. Secondly, Isaac is loved. He's your beloved son. Uh, he's the one whom you love. This is my son. In him I am well pleased, Abraham would say. Isaac is dearly loved. In fact, 
you're taking notes, it's interesting here, this is the first reference to love in the Bible. And it's here on this amazing Christophany. God loves the world. God loves his son. Abraham loves Isaac. But the third point here is the most significant as you read through Genesis in one sitting, you recognize this is so interesting because this is the promised son. What is going on in the narrative here? This is a wrinkle I didn't expect. I'm reading along, I'm reading along, I'm reading about this family that God's building. I'm so excited for Abraham, I'm cheering for him. And then all of a sudden, offer Isaac. This is the promised son through whom all the world would be blessed. How can this be? God originally gave this promise to Abraham, called him at 70, but 75, the son, the heir of promise. When did he have the son? When he's 100. For 25 years, he waited for this son. And when he's 100, he's well past. His womb, Sarah's womb is dead at 90. His body is dead. There's no way for him physically to have a child. That no longer works, the Bible says. And yet, God miraculously brought forth a child. A miraculous birth is given as this only begotten son is brought into the world, this promised one. And now he's saying, offer him up by sacrifice. Abraham saw God's faithfulness to his promises in those 25 years. And so knowing God's faithfulness to his promises in the past instilled faith in his provision in the future. And he was able to take this test and pass it. Abraham's obedience, verses 3 and following, Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son split the wood for the burnt offering, arose, and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. What do we notice about his obedience here? First of all, his obedience is immediate. Abraham rose early in the morning. Right? I think Abraham before would have bartered with God, like he did at Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, Lord, what about, what about for, um, just give me a month with my son. No, give me a week with my son. No, give me a day with my son. No, maybe that would have been Abraham before. Now Abraham's obedience is immediate. Gets up early in the next morning and is ready to get to work. Saddled his donkey. His obedience is constant. I, th- I give props to Abraham as a hundred-year-old man actually cutting his own wood. Chop- he splits the wood. And he's ready to go for how many days? Three days. Two nights. Traveling. This is a constant obedience. Sometimes we make a decision for the Lord and, and, and it, you know, it's immediate, but it fizzles out over time. Abraham makes this amazing faith commitment in obedience to God, and his faith doesn't waver. It continues to, he continues to obey. On the third day, this would have been a travel. This is actually Abraham's, he traveled a lot already. Uh, he's, he's actually right about here at this point, uh, Beersheba. 
Um, this journey would have been from here to here, which is fascinating. 30 miles, but you're walking. You're a 100-year-old man. Now, he's probably riding the donkey, but it's like they're not covering 20 miles a day. Uh, three days, they make the 30 miles. But isn't that fascinating? God has him travel to where? To Jerusalem. Why not a mountain there? Why not a holy place there? Because he wants him to travel to Jerusalem. It's very important that he travels to Jerusalem. Now, it's not Jerusalem at that point. Comes Jerusalem 500 years after that. I'm sorry, 1,000 years after that. This is 2,000 years before Jesus. Written 1,500 years before Jesus. Look at his obedience is based on faith. And I and the lad will go over there and we will worship. And what it says in the text and how we will return. Abraham believed God. He believed that God was going to sort this out. Hebrews tells us that he actually believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham, as an Old Testament believer, Christian, in that sense, is believing the resurrection. He has faith because his faith is the same as ours. His faith, the content is a little different, meaning what he's believing, but the object, who he's believing in, is the same. And that is our God and Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. I and the lad will go over there and we will return. And so the scene closes. This is a dramatic story. It's so dramatic. I am not going to give it justice. I'm just going to read it, okay? It's amazing. What a staggering scene closes with a dad and a son's staggering walk for days. I can see Abraham crying at night. I'm just putting that in there. I, like, there's, I, have, a, I have two sons. I can't imagine what he's going through. Look at the next scene, an intimate talk of faith. This gets even more dramatic. Here we zoom in. We zoom in and we hear dialogue between this dad and this son in this intense, intensely difficult situation. Honest question. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took his hand, in his hand, the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Leaves everyone behind. Isaac speaks to Abraham, my father, here I am, my son. Behold the fire, the wood, where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Very good question. Uh, as they ascend a mountain in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, which I, I believe with all my heart to be Golgotha, as they, they, they climb a mountain in Jerusalem, the father takes the weapons of piercing. The son takes the altar. We have this amazing prophetic. Just listen to it. I had to just kneel down and worship the Lord when studying this week. Abraham says this prophetic answer, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. This is his faith. And this is God saying he is going to provide the lamb 
The father tells the son he will provide the lamb, the lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. But His faith is still fixed. His faith is still fixed because he knows, again, God's faithfulness to his promise to the past and it stills this faith that he will raise his son from the dead. And he believes that when he's through with this whole scene, his son's going to leave with him. But I love this, that that faith in scene three, we find passed along to the son. Son Scene closes with dad and son's intimate talk. And we find this third scene a saved son and a son of salvation. Um, I, I do believe at this point there's two expressions of faith here. One is Abraham and Isaac. Um, we find that here. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there, and they arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. We find Abraham's great faith here that he goes that far. His knife is raised. I think we find Isaac also expressing faith, the same faith of his father. Isaac is, is not a boy here. Uh, it's the same idea of, of, his, uh, of the helpers that brought them there. It's the same word. This young man, if we follow the chronology right, he's probably 20. He lets his dad lift him up onto the altar, bind him. 100-year-old man. Isaac has embraced the faith of his father, believing in the resurrection. Isaac, as well, is a father of the faith. We find this altar of obedience. And so, Abraham raised his eyes. Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son. And as he's ready to slay his son, the angel of the Lord, Christophany, Angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me, the Lord. The angel of the Lord says, you have not withheld your son from me. So this altar of obedience, Abraham raises his eyes, looked, behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. We have a sacrificial lamb being offered on Golgotha, the father for his son. So who is obedient here? Yes, Abraham and Isaac. But if we could look very deeply here, this is the astounding, amazing, uh, just worshipful thought here. Who else is being obedient here? God the Father and God the Son. Abraham and Isaac, it's hard for, but God the Father and God the Son are going to go through with it. And Abraham prophesied that. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And he gives this amazing prophecy, in the mount of the Lord there in Jerusalem, it will be provided. What will be provided? Salvation. Eternal life. The Lamb of God will come and take on Himself the sin of all the world and be slain in our place. And look at this. Who is obedient here? Who else is obedient here? The Son of God. 
stops the knife. This is the amazing thing about the Christophany. The Son of God could allow the knife to go, and who would have died? The whole line. Isaac, all the way down to Jesus, and he would never have had to come. Stopping the knife actually plunges the knife, the pierced spear into his side, the nails into his hands. Because Jesus stops as the Christophany, as the angel of the Lord, stops the violence to that son, he takes upon himself the violence of his own father. An amazing truth. And so if I could speak reverently here, we find the Father and the Son lifting up their own altar. God the Father, God the Son are right there building the spot, building the prophecy. I see them taking the stone of Abraham, setting him there, the stone of Isaac, setting him there, and they're beginning to build the altar on which the stage is set for the redemption of all humanity The cross of Jesus, that very altar, is beginning to be built here. And Father and Son, maybe quietly build it together. As Christ stops through the pre-incarnate appearance, the knife, he is securing his own death. And through that, allowing for this divine blessing to us all. And that's the last scene. Scene closes, I would say, with a dad and son's infinite sacrifice. Because father and son then are like, that's it. This is where it's going to happen through the seed of these. And here's where it's promised. This is where you and I come into the picture. We actually are there. Queens is there in Genesis 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven. Jesus calls again, by myself. Jesus, this is why it has to be Jesus. God is calling, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this thing, have not withhold your son, your only begotten son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven. So we think of all these stars, this multiple of descendants of the Jewish people, of which we have many in our room today. But look what he goes on to say. Your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, that is singular in the Hebrew. In in one of your descendants, through one of your descendants, namely himself, all the nations of the earth represented in our room here. People from all over the world are going to be blessed, eternally blessed. Not just with potato chips and toilet paper. That kind of provision. Yes, that but with eternal life, comfort before the Lord for eternity. All that is yours because of this promise. And an amazing promise it is. God keeps it 2,000 years later. Jesus comes. He dies in that same spot. A bloody death pouring out his blood for you. That you may have eternal life. He kept his promise to you. And so as we see this, we come back to that same phrase, knowing God's faithfulness to his promises in the past, that he would build this altar thousands of years before it even came, instills faith. God is not short-sighted. God is not weak. God is able. 
for anything I need. I have faith in his provision. I don't need to be anxious. I don't need to worry. That's talking about someone who does not have a father who is eternal, who is all-knowing and all-powerful. And so knowing God's faithfulness to his promises in the past instills faith in his provision for our future. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Let me just ask you to meditate on this beautiful truth. I don't know what you're wrestling with. I think there's two very important applications here. The first one is, do you have the provision of salvation? Do you have eternal life through this promise? You come through faith alone, meaning you don't try to earn this. This was planned so long ago from eternity past. It's not something you can earn, but you don't have to receive it. It's a gift that God built, but you have to receive it. And so it would, be a, it would be a horrible, horrible, horrible thing if you saw this and did not respond in faith. And say, I believe. I believe the good news. There's no way this is faked. It's 1,500 years before Jesus. Here it is, supernaturally written right before you. And yet, and yet it happened. And it's for you. Would you believe it? Receive eternal life. Ask for forgiveness based on this truth. Ask for forgiveness based on the fact that Jesus died on that cross. And ask and say, Lord, please cleanse me from all my past, present, and future sins. I trust you. Would you do that now? And then also, I just encourage all of us to come to our Father, even now. What is it that you're angst, angst about? It's probably not the supply line, but, but you know, there are some real pressures represented in our room here. They may be smaller to some and really great for others. Or you're like, Tim, you don't know. If it doesn't happen by Tuesday, I'm dead. I'm gone. Well, let me just encourage you to, to have Abraham's faith by looking at this amazing promise. If he was able to do this, he is more than able to take care of all of your needs. Knowing God's faithfulness and his promises in the past, those amazing promises will instill faith for you now and provision for all your future needs. Let's pray. In a moment, Pastor Andrew will close us in prayer, but let's all, let's all talk to the Lord at this time. There's just a little, little minute here where you can talk to the Lord. Please do that. I'll be standing in the back and be happy to pray with you if you'd like prayer or have someone else pray with you. But let's all do business with God. Let's pray.